This is the final talk in a four-part series on Paul's letter to the Romans by Terry Virgo and is entitled The Essence of Grace. This talk is based on Romans 7, 1-13 and has been made available to you through New Frontiers. Well, good morning. Perhaps I could just take opportunity on this uh, last occasion to thank you so much for your warmth and friendliness. I've certainly greatly enjoyed being with you, not only in the sessions, but over meals and uh, around the camp. I'm so appreciative of the uh, very warm and friendly welcome. My first time here, and it's been a a real blessing. I've enjoyed uh, encountering your commitment to Christ and to his word and uh, his call to mission, especially among students and I know beyond as you press on to all that God has for you in your lives but it's been a, a real joy. So thank you very, very much. And uh, if ever you're in Brighton, I should have prompted somebody before, shouldn't I? If ever you're in Brighton, or Sussex, <laughs> you're very welcome to uh, come and visit us at Church of Christ the King in Brighton and uh, near Brighton Station. You'd always be very, very welcome. Lots of students around, so please come and see us sometime. Uh, or visit us on the New Frontiers website if you'd like to see if you can find a similar church anywhere near where you might be or your friends might be. Uh, you can find out all about us on that website. So thanks again for your warmth and friendliness. We've already had the passage read to us and uh, we've been prayed for. And so let's press into this very important chapter. The Apostle Paul has told us already the sort of things actually that many of us have expressed in prayer and certainly in our songs uh, today again that there is a righteousness that's given to us as a gift freely through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and the atonement that he made for us. Praise his name. So we are accepted, righteous as a gift. Now out of that come at least two questions. The first one we looked at yesterday, shall we carry on sinning then? If God's so prepared that we just believe and he regards us as righteous, this sounds like a, uh, an easy deal. We, we could just carry on sinning. Uh, we dealt with that uh, in some measure yesterday, looking at uh, his answer to that question. The other question that would have arisen, especially for those from a Jewish background, would have been, well, what about the law then? All these centuries, we've thought that the law was essential in regard to our relationship to God, salvation, enjoyment of his favor and blessing. And now Paul is telling us through faith, we are uh, right with God. What about the law? This is a huge question. And so before he continues, if you like, with his argument, which I believe he picks up again in Romans 8 and verse 1, therefore there's no condemnation in Christ and presses on uh, with the argument. It's almost as though chapter 6 is answering one question. What about sin then? And chapter 7 is answering another question. What about the law then? And that is the subject of this whole chapter. Not that we're working through the whole chapter. Uh, If we have time, we may make some reference to the part that we didn't have read. But we essentially want to work through the part that was read. The big question that comes from this passage, if you like, for us as Christians, and for indeed every Christian, is are Christians under the law or not? And I think for many of us... uh, 
We may be very clear about that, but for many in the churches, to be honest, and maybe in the CUs, they may not be so clear. They uh, may be uh, rather uh, uncertain about our relationship with the law. And uh, when you read a verse like uh, chapter, uh, verse 1 of our chapter, the law has jurisdiction or authority over a person as long as he lives. It sounds pretty final and complete, and uh, some, many could feel, yes, we are under law. I think if you ask the average congregation, hands up, if you think a Christian is under the law or not, or then hands up if you think we're not under the law. I mean, if I was to do it now or if you were to do it in your church, I think a lot of people would be looking around. What's the pastor doing? What are the, who's, where are we on this? I think we're a little unsure sometimes. We don't, we don't quite know. A friend of mine was invited into a school and he preached the gospel but was given a great deal of freedom in the morning assembly except he was told, you mustn't make an appeal. You're allowed to preach for the time I've given you, but no appeal. And uh, he got preaching and he got really excited and really felt God was with him in what he was doing. And he sensed people were rising uh, in their hearts to what he was saying. And so he said at the end, he said, now, of course, here in this school, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to make any kind of appeal here, he said. But uh, I'm really curious, if I had done, how many of you would have... <laughs> and uh, I won't do that with you here this morning, okay? So... We are looking at the place of the law for the believer. Is the believer under the law or not? It's a hugely relevant issue, especially for the young Christian, indeed for every believer. One of my first experiences as a young Christian when I started going to the local church was uh, one day I stopped to get some petrol for my motor scooter, which I used to uh, ride. And uh, as I stopped there to get it, um, a lady from the church saw me there and uh, said, what are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm getting some petrol from my scooter. She said, don't you know it's the Sabbath? I thought, what does that mean? What was she talking about? Now, for her, it's some big issue that I was getting some petrol uh, on that particular morning. And so for some people, it is a very big issue, all sorts of rules and regulations and uh, perceptions. So let's have a look and see what the Apostle Paul has to say in probably the most developed passage about our relationship with law unless you say the whole book of Galatians but here in this passage a very very clear uh, teaching from the apostle Paul so first of all let's see as we had read to us he uses the imagery of marriage he sees us as it were as the wife of the law the law as the husband having jurisdiction over a person as long as they live authority over a person as long as they live and the law uh, is a certain kind of a husband. He, has, he is a demanding husband. He comes with certain requirements. He comes with his uh, view of life. He says, you shall not do this. Uh, don't do that. Thou shall not do that. You shall not do this. This is your husband who is uh, talking to you with authority, uh, with, uh, with certain demands. And actually, it's no good arguing with him. It's no good saying, well, I don't agree. Uh, because in your heart, you know he's right. And so you've got this rather overbearing, demanding, authoritative husband who's always right. And uh, also, sadly, he never lifts a finger to help you. The law just shows you where you fall short and tells you his high, high requirements. He's also a very exclusive husband, quite rightly so, that a husband should be exclusive. It says here, if you were to be married to someone else... That would be regarded as adultery. So it's no good you saying, well, actually, I would rather be the bride of Christ, thank you. 
You say, sorry, you're already married to the law. Can't have two husbands. You're married to the law. The law is a husband and to put the final nail in the coffin, if I may put it this way, uh, the law will never pass away. Isn't that good news? All right, so you are permanently married to an authoritative, fault-finding, unhelpful husband who sets an impossibly high ideal, will never lift a finger to help you, and is never going to die. (laughs) This is Christianity in some people's understanding, and a pretty terrible prospect. Now, strangely, Paul suddenly turns the argument on its head, having kind of hinted about whether he would die or not, the law, uh, in verse 2, the possibility of the husband dying, he's no, no, that won't happen. Suddenly in verse 4, he changes the whole argument, and we have to watch it very carefully. Therefore, my brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So suddenly, having suggested the possibility of the husband dying, he turns it round and says, no, no, you, you, you believers, you were made to die to the law. You've died to the law through the body of Christ. God has done a remarkable thing through the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means through our being united with Christ through conversion, being in Christ, which is Paul's favorite phrase for being a Christian, one who is in him, in Christ, in whom. uh, We are in Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, we were in him, as we've talked about in relationship to sin's power in the previous chapter. Now he's talking in relation to the relationship with law. Our relationship with law. We have died through the body of Christ to this old husband. This old husband lives on, as we'll see in a moment, but our relationship with him is terminated because when Jesus Christ died on the law, on the cross, the law was thoroughly fulfilled in cursing him. In fact, Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. Jesus fulfilled the law in that throughout his whole perfect, innocent life, he never broke the law. He was pure. He told us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. He never prayed that prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. He never prayed it. He never said to God, I'm sorry, Father. I I shouldn't have said that. Ah, that was hasty. I do regret. Never, never knew regret. Never had a shade pass over his pure, innocent soul. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He fulfilled the law. But then on the cross, he fulfilled also the law in as much as the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And there, on the cross, Jesus, as our substitute, died as though he had broken every law in the book. And there, God made him. It's not a a passive sentence. We often say he was made sin. No, God made him sin, who knew no sin. God made him to be sin for us. And there, on the cross, Jesus died as though he was the biggest lawbreaker that ever been. And so he fulfilled the law, if you like, in two ways. One, by perfectly fulfilling it. Secondly, by taking its full curse, the wrath and fury of a holy God as he hung on the cross. And the law was satisfied in cursing him. The law was fulfilled in doing that in his life. And Jesus died to the law and we, praise God, were in him at that time. God did that for us. So in Galatians 2, 19, 20, J.B. Phillips translates very helpfully, under the law, I died. Now 
I am dead to the law's demands so that I may live for God. As far as the law is concerned, I may consider that I died on the cross with Christ. Right, so my relationship with law is history. Sometimes the devil gets behind the law, as it were, as accuser of the brethren, and confuses us in terms of accusation, sometimes using the law. And it's very important for us to understand where we stand in relationship to it. We have already died. It's no good when the devil accuses you to say, well, I'll try harder then to keep the law. I'll work at it a bit more. Maybe I'll add a few more evangelical laws as well. And I'll try very hard to keep the rules because I feel accused. I feel condemned. That is not the answer. The answer is this. When the enemy says you are a sinner, you say, yes, I know. That's why Jesus died in my place. Hallelujah. He died for sinners. He died for lawbreakers. And Jesus died to the law once and for all. And I was in him. So it's history. It's behind me. That judgment is behind me. I was in Christ. I was crucified with Christ to the law. It's finished. It's behind me. It's over. So we have been released, verse 6. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We are discharged. It's rather like a soldier maybe, who's done a period of national service. He's been in the military for maybe two or three years. And uh, while there, been ordered around, a sergeant major screaming at him, telling him what to do, and uh, just obeying that. And then there comes the moment when you are discharged. That's what this word released means, discharged. You're not in it anymore. And I, I can imagine uh, the, the soldier... Uh, just walking across the parade ground with no tie on and his jacket slung over his shoulder and uh, <sighs> discharged. Uh, and suddenly the sergeant major comes around the corner and says, Soldier! <gasps> Sarge! And I think, wait a minute, I'm out. Bye, Sarge. <laughs> and it really doesn't matter how much he shouts, how much the veins stand out on his neck. He can't touch you. Bye, Sarge. You're discharged. You're out. You're not under that jurisdiction anymore. I am not under the law. The believer is not under the law. He has been discharged. Now, it's important for us to see that it's not the law that has died. It's very important to follow Paul's argument. As I said earlier, he doesn't say the law has died because Jesus said the law will never pass away. But we have died to the law. And Paul is consistent in this where he says, for instance, in 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, we know the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. So if we say, well, we totally embrace grace, it isn't that we go out to sinners and don't teach the law to them. That's not the point. The law is good, providing you use it lawfully, knowing it's for sinners. We'll, we'll develop this a little bit more later, later, later. But here we just need to see this. The distinction Paul makes quite clearly the law is for the sinner that if you use it lawfully, you don't use it for the righteous because the righteous, well, I've been discharged from it. I've died to it. I've no more relationship with it. I'm over. Again, in Romans 10 and 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's the end. As Hebrews says, it's obsolete. We are no longer 
in that relationship with God. Now, it's very important for us to understand that. I'll come back to a bit more application later on, but we need to see it theologically first. Be satisfied this is what the Bible says. I, I think sometimes Christians get troubled by such an, a kind of statement of emancipation. And I, I once preached um, some using this very illustration, and I had a letter from someone who said, a rather harsh letter, I'm sorry to say, saying, I have understood that you regard yourself as something of a fan of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I would hesitate to think that he would ever use such an illustration as you used about the soldier who walked away free and discharged. And I had to write back to him and say, actually, I don't claim to be an authority on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I got the illustration from his book on Romans 7. <laughs> Sometimes we think we understand these great teachers and we feel, oh, we know them, they're safe. Dr. Lloyd-Jones preached this verse by verse, what it actually says. We're discharged. We're free. We're no longer under the law. So where does that leave us? In some kind of spiritual vacuum? Well, the verse... Uh, it's so important, as we've heard earlier in these days together, that the verse is seen in a context. And here we find in verse 4, it says, So that, halfway through the verse, I'm reading NSB sometimes, so forgive me if the word's slightly different. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. I think NIV has belong to. Uh, slightly inadequate translation, as often is, sorry. But uh, joined to. It's, it's using a marriage context. Uh, and, and we are joined to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Right? So God's purpose is not that we float around independent, well, used to be under law, not under law anymore. We're totally liberated, do what you like. Well, that's not quite what it means. It says we've died to one husband in order that we might be joined to another who? Well, to him who was raised from the dead. Well, we all know who that is, praise God. We are joined to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. Now, it's interesting, you see, that the law has completed its task. That former husband has done the job. The law's temporary function is fulfilled. God's ultimate purpose is that we should be married to Christ. As we heard that magnificent passage from Revelation read in our uh, worship time together. That's the climax of the ages. And that's something we can enjoy now. I am even now enjoying a relationship with Jesus. Abiding in him. He abiding in me. The Lord's job as my former husband was to bring me to Christ. Galatians uses different analogy. The law is our school teacher. Not literally school teacher. More like child collector. It's a bit like American busing. Going to get the kids to bring them to school. That's what that uh, particular slave's responsibility was. To collect the child, children and bring them to school. Not actually a teacher, but a, a child collector and a presenter of children to school. The law is our child collector to present us to Christ. And Paul argues it differently in Galatians. Here he's talking about husband-wife. In Galatians he's talking about school, uh, schoolmaster and now sonship. He says, now you are a son, the spirit of sonship's coming up in your heart, crying, Abba, Father. You don't go back to the old teacher, or at least child collector. You're a son now. You've got a new relationship now. And so with us now, we have a new relationship. It's with Christ as our bridegroom. 
The bridegroom has come. Jesus did his first sign at a wedding. He's introduced by John the Baptist when they said, are you the one? He said, no, no, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom's coming. The whole point is God's coming to be married to his bride. So we now are joined to Christ. The law had a temporary function now fulfilled in presenting me to Christ. Now I am no longer under the tutor using Galatians or here under that old husband using Romans 7. But notice in my fourth point in your notes, if you're looking there at all, an impotent husband is replaced by a life-imparting one. What do I mean by that? Well, the verse says that we might be joined to another, that we might bear fruit for God. Now, that's the first introduction of the idea of being fruitful. Our relationship with our previous husband, there's no reference to fruit. He tells you the rules, he tells you the list, the things you're not meant to do, the standards he expects you to rise to, but there's no reference to fruit. We were married to him, but that bore no fruit. In fact, a very, very important verse in Galatians and 3, verse 21, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. That's a very important verse. If a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on law. But see, the law doesn't impart life. The law says, you shall not steal. Ah, wow, whoa, it hit me. I don't steal anymore. You shall not commit adultery. Boom, just tell them. All you need is to be told. No, the law doesn't impart any life. If a law hadn't been given that could impart life, but sorry, the law is impotent. It doesn't impart life. I have died to that impotent husband. But now I have been joined to him who was raised from the dead. And Jesus is not impotent. He's a life-imparting husband. He says, abide in me and I in you. You'll bear much fruit. How do I live the fruitful life? Keep close to your husband. Love him, worship him, enjoy him, have fellowship with him, be close to him. You will find not the rules outside, not the letter that kills, but the spirit that gives life. You'll find, yes, you'll change way beyond the law's requirements because the law was impotent anyway. But now in Christ, he will say, my peace I give to you. Wow. I shed my love abroad in your heart. My joy I give to you. God imparts supernaturally through our new husband a lifestyle the law could never produce. The old law was impotent. Jesus is a life imparting husband how do i live the godly life abide in me jesus says let me abide if my word abides in you you're going to bear a lot of fruit it comes out of fellowship with jesus it comes out of enjoying this new relationship with your magnificent life imparting husband and he produces in you this fruit of the spirit fruit of his relationship with you he does it by the spirit and we enjoy this fellowship with him that's the way we live the godly life and sometimes people say, well, isn't it dangerous uh, to leave the law behind? Well, no, because the law is impotent. It can't produce it. Israel is proof of that. The nation of Israel was given the law with lightning and thunder and the whole deal. 
But it didn't produce a holy people at all. God had to throw them out of the land. The Lord doesn't produce holiness. And so we need to understand that actually doesn't produce it. And so sometimes people will feel, hey, you need to put some law, especially on young people. You're doing a teenage work, don't teach them grace. Bang the law in. Maybe when they get older, you can tell them the real gospel. Very dangerous indeed. Now, if they're not saved, of course, of course, they need the law. But once they're saved, if you try to raise young Christians on law because they're not ready for grace yet, you just started preaching what Paul would call another gospel, and you have fallen away from grace. See, we often use that phrase, oh, he fell away from grace, means he backslid. Paul doesn't use it like that. He says they've become legalists, they've fallen away from grace. And so we need to have our young people, as well as anybody else, understand that the gospel is a life-imparting gospel. It's not rules and regulations, it's different to any other religion. And Paul says the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Now, should we, have, we better have a little letter and a little spirit. Why? Do you want to get killed a little bit? That's in the Corinthian argument. He uses these arguments again and again and again. And this book, God's Lavish Grace, I've tried to approach it from all the different places. To, we need to be utterly secure and certain about this. We are grace people. We are secure in this. And you do not need a little law just to keep you on the straight and narrow because the little law is impotent. It doesn't impart the life. And so we need to be very careful that we don't get into spiritual adultery ourselves. Sometimes you can say to people, you know, how are you going spiritually? And they say, well, I'm a bit up and down. And I feel like sometimes saying, well, it's not so much up and down. It's probably husband to husband. And, and people do get confused between old covenant and new covenant. It can happen from the day you got saved. It can happen from the beginning. You know, you imagine uh, someone who first hears the gospel. You meet a Christian. You think, wow, what's with him? What's with her? They seem happy and peaceful and kind of clean. You feel a bit unclean. And they say, come to church. So you go along and they're all a bit like it. You think, wow, these are... Remarkable people. And so often you think, well, I better clean up my act. I'll try and improve myself. And as we all know, it doesn't work. And there comes the glorious day when they suddenly hear the gospel. Just as I am, I can come and receive. And in that moment, suddenly the light comes on. I've heard one or two of you, as I've asked over meals, well, how did you become a Christian? I suddenly saw it. Yes, we, we just suddenly saw it. And what can happen sometimes is on that very day that you suddenly saw it, you're in church and uh, you say, I'm saved, all my sins are forgiven. Someone says, uh, this guy will help you. Oh, okay, thank you very much. And he takes you aside and says, uh, great, well, now you're a Christian. <laughs> yeah, wonderful, isn't it? Some things I need to tell you. Okay, great. Tell me, well, now you're a Christian. Um, you need to always do this and uh, you must always go there and you must never wear that again. And you, and you say, oh, thank you. Yeah, great. Mm, thank you. Got it. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's really helpful, I think. And, uh, I, and right now, go on your way. Be blessed. Oh, thanks. I feel wonderfully released from my um, <laughs> burden. And what can happen is that some people are coming to Christ and we just burden them with laws. They're perceived to be laws. Now we need to teach, and we'll see how much time we've got today, the difference between legalism and discipline. I'll come back to that. They're very different things. But legalism is somehow trying to impress God by things you do. 
Trying to earn points. Trying to do it his way, as you think. And so trying, as we keep these laws, as we think them to be, to somehow be right with God, forgetting that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And sometimes we can get into a place where we feel somewhat backslidden. That happens to believers. We have, we have, I believe in a doctrine of backsliding. It happens. The Bible shows us. You, you, can, you can have times when you, you're somewhat backslidden. You feel, God, I've, I feel I've not done well lately. And you may be convicted sometimes in a meeting. You come, and you come to God, and the danger is this. You come to Jesus, your husband, and you say to Jesus, Lord, I'm really sorry I've drifted from you. I want to come back to you now. Please forgive me. Uh, from now on, Lord, I'll really do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Then you'll be pleased with me, won't you, Jesus? And what we're, It's like we're saying to your new husband, I tell you what, Lord, I'll really develop my relationship with my old husband. That will really please you, won't it? <laughs> See, you try that in the world. No, Jesus, even in the book of Revelation where in the Laodicean church, which was a backslidden community, lukewarm. Jesus says, I'm standing at the door knocking, a verse we often take out of context and use as a gospel word, but in reality it was a word to a church. And he says, I'm standing at the door knocking, I'm outside. If any man hears my voice, opens the door, what? I'll come into him. See, we sometimes say, well, I've got to somehow make myself worthy. I feel I've let God down. I've got to somehow earn some credits. I've got to feel a bit more compatible. Now, the fact is this. We, we, we come to him. We don't, he is the way. I don't need a way to the way. He's the way. However you feel, however raw. How, he says, I will come to me. I will come into him. Well, here we are again. There's this new husband who's saying, come on, I want the most intimate of relationships with you. Even when you're backslidden. So we never need to go back to rule keeping as a way of somehow pleasing him. Because he's the husband now. We relate to him. And he's the one who makes us produce a godly life. And in fact, you find yourself keeping the law without realizing it. As you love Jesus and obey him and enjoy his fellowship. You find actually you're living a life surpassing the scribes and Pharisees. Through this inspired life of love and joy and peace. And all the things that he builds into you by this relationship of love. The heart of our walk with God is a relationship of love. So you might say, well, what's the point of the law then? Well, Paul goes on to that. And obviously, he's aware that he's maybe scandalizing some of his Jewish readers. And they may feel as though, well, are you, are you just saying the law is bad? Well, we know we must look on a little further. Paul vindicates the law. Verse 7. We work in the text here again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known coveting except the law says you shall not covet. Okay, so what is the, what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul just spells out two or three things we'll look at very quickly here. First of all, the law defines sin. The law defines I would have not have come to know sin except through the law. And he uses the illustration of coveting. Romans 3.20 says similar. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? So the first purpose of the law 
is to define sin, is to say, this is where the line is drawn. John's epistle tells us sin is the transgression of the law. Sin isn't a social thing. It's not what's accepted in the modern society. Now, we've all got conscience. God has given us conscience, but conscience is not perfect. It can get confused. Conscience, I believe, is a gift of God. It's something we need to keep our conscience, be obedient to it. But the world can get very confused about conscience. And as we looked at on our first day, uh, the world out there has all kinds of different views now. And as Vaughan brought to us, it's just a, it's a mess out there. People, people can even somehow do things and their conscience seems to have been trodden underfoot. And so we need an, we need an external line. Sin is against God. It's not against society. And God says, here's my requirement. So the first thing the Lord does is draw the line. He says, this is in, this is out. This is acceptable, this is unacceptable. So the law, first of all, it defines sin. That's its first uh, role, according to this passage. And then secondly, and strangely, the law, Paul says, provokes sin. That's a strange, unexpected thing. Verse 8, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin revived, came alive. And I died. So Paul is saying, strangely, the law not only defines sin, it provokes sin. It's like when you're walking through a beautiful park and you see this sign and it says, keep off the grass. You think, whose grass is it anyway? There's something in us. You know, you say to a child, I'm just going to the shop. Don't touch the cakes I've just made. The cakes you've just made. You know, it's like, don't is, whoa, here we go. And, and there's something about that, that, re- that stirs up rebellion. You see, we find sometimes in polls, you'll hear people say, oh, 70% of people still believe in God. I think, wow, it's better than we thought. And then you say, well, all these people believe in God. Perhaps we should tell them, hey, listen, you believe in God? Yeah, I think so. Right, this is what God requires of you. You should not lie. You should not commit adultery. They don't say, oh, thanks, never realized that. That's really helpful. Hmm, Thank you for that. They don't say that. They say, what? If there's a God, then why doesn't he stop wars? And and they don't really, they're not too happy with law. It provokes rebellion. That's what Paul is saying. Law, he said, that which was supposed to produce life in me, produced death in me. Somehow it stirs provocation. That's the second thing that law does. And that's again why legalism will never produce godliness. Because the Bible tells us it even provokes rebellion. That's Paul's assessment here. And then verse 13 is an important verse. I'll read it to you. A little NIV here so I can read it with you. Because it's a very, very difficult verse. So it helps to read the same. Verse 13. Did that which is good then. Or let's just read the previous verse. So then, Paul is vindicating the law here, verse uh, 12. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13, very difficult verse really. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced in me through what is good, sorry, it produced death in me through what is good. 
so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What on earth is that all about? I, I believe what he's saying is, is that the, the law demonstrates beyond question that we are sinful. It shows the sinfulness of man. How come? Well, let me just uh, take this glass of water here. Now, I didn't get this, and I didn't pour this, so I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm inclined to think it's good. Probably it's good. A lot of people think that about the human race. It's good. It just needs better education, maybe better housing, better opportunity. But man is intrinsically good. That's often what people think. As believers, we've been taught something else, but men can often think that's good. And I, and I think, well, I might think this is good. This, I'll, just, I'll just try it. Yeah, I think it's probably good. I'm not sure. I think it's good. But I tell you what, I want to make sure. I want to make sure it's good. I'll add to it an imagined perfect substance that is holy and pure and good. As though we had hold of some uh, supernatural thing, right? but there's no question about this. Right? We're, we're, we think this is good, but we're not sure. Mm. I think it's good, but I'm not sure. So right now, I'm going to add to it something I know is holy and pure and good. No question about this, right? We'll add, we'll add the good to this questionable stuff. Now, I'm going to try it again, having added it. Utterly disgusting. It's, it's vile. It's horrific. What have I learned? Well, I know that what I added was good. It was holy and pure. So what? So, this must have been a lot worse than I realized. Understand? Follow? No? Some nodding? Follow? I thought it was good. Mm, maybe. I add. I add. This is very difficult to do with a hand mic. <laughs> Lapel mics are much easier. But you add something, and then when you added something that is unquestionably pure, the law has been added. But instead of the law making man better, Paul says it made me worse. The law came and sin came alive. Sin revived. That which was meant to be good for me did me harm. What is it showing me? It's showing me the sinfulness of sin. It's showing me that I am so bad. It's no good just adding a few laws to me. I'm in terrible need. I am worse than I thought I was. You may think, well, a nice neighbor you've got. You know, he seems okay. He's a bank manager or something. You think, well, what can I tell him? He's a sinner. We can think human race. They're pretty good people, really. The Bible tells me this. that God added something, brought something holy and pure, came down out of heaven. But it's, it's, it, what it shows is my rebellious nature. I, law's never going to save me. It's not powerful enough. I need what? A new creation. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, well, no, we know you're your teacher sent from God, began to ask questions. Not very clever opening line, we know. And Jesus said to him, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom. I think Nicodemus walked out thinking, we don't know anything. <laughs> unless you're born again. It's no good just adding a few laws. You are so dead, the laws will make you worse. 
You need a new creation. You need to be a new person altogether. And therefore, we died with Christ and have been raised to newness of life and have been joined to a potent husband who's been raised from the left. We co-raised with him. We have our relationship with him. The law cannot change us. It doesn't have the potency to do so. And so Paul is arguing this case for us, and it's important for us to follow it through. We won't go through with uh, the latter part of Romans 7. I would just say this to you, because I know, you know, as Bible students, you will have looked into that passage, and it's a difficult passage. I am persuaded, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I owe a huge debt to in first reading his treatment of this, that that is not Paul's testimony, the end of Romans 7. You know, the things I do, I can't do, the things I do, and all that difficult passage. And some people say, well, of course, Paul had difficulty too. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no, if you look closely, the language is too strong. He doesn't say, I have a bad day sometimes. He says things like this, I am sold into bondage to sin. Now, elsewhere, Paul says things like this. He says, "Uh, all things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that's the consistent note of Paul's writings and indeed John's writing in the whole New Testament. I'm not going to let these things master me. Very different to the poor, sad figure of the end of Romans 7. Who will deliver me? I'm totally mastered. No, it's, I believe, too big a subject to get into right now in five minutes. But I do believe it is not the testimony of Paul or of the believer. I don't think that's how it's to be understood. And I know it's a huge subject, but I want to just say that, although I haven't time uh, to develop it here. I believe it is the awakened Christian's view of how he would have seen it under the Jewish perspective before he was truly saved. Looking back, right? It gets complicated. I won't go into it. It's important for us not to lose what I'm saying at this moment in this first half of Romans 7 that our hold, we were married to this husband, the law, we have died. It's, It's that radical. I have died, I am discharged. I am no longer married to him. Not that he will ever die. We need to keep preaching the law to the sinner. Keep preaching God's holy requirements. Understanding this, the law is not for the righteous, but for sinners. But once we are saved, we are discharged from that husband in order that we might have an exclusive relationship with our new husband, who is a life-imparting, potent husband. And if I enjoy an ever richer experience of his love and nearness, companionship, personal mutual delight, I delight greatly in the Lord. The name of the church is that he delights in us. Enjoy that relationship. A godly life will be produced that is not the fruit of law keeping, but the fruit of a love relationship with him. It's very important that we see that distinction. And then just to conclude... Uh, notice where Paul arrives in Romans 8. We are no longer under law. Sorry, I'm reading my little quote first. <laughs> we are no longer under law, but under grace. Law has done its job. It's brought us the clear awareness of our failure. It's led us to Christ. Christ produces forgiveness, justification, and freedom. Marriage is a life-imparting relationship with him. And then Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh 
in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, walk according, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God gets the righteous life he wanted from us, but the means is quite different. Galatians 5.16, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's the spirit, this relationship with Jesus, which is imparted to us through the spirit, of course. Jesus ascended in the heavens. His spirit is with us. We relate to Christ by the spirit. We enjoy this relationship, this life-imparting relationship, and this produces the fruit of the spirit in us. i just uh, close maybe by reference to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, which I almost feel is like um, a Galatians. (laughs) The woman, you remember, is found in the act of adultery. The law finds her. The legalists come. And and, and they bring her to Jesus. Hallelujah, they do a Galatians. The law brings us to Christ. And then they say what they say. And Jesus upholds the law, vindicates the law. He says, right. Let's start throwing stones. Uh, let's have the first one of you. Anyone who's out of sin, start throwing. It's not that he says, oh, wow, poor girl. Yeah, we know. I guess you were abused in childhood. It's difficult. We do understand. Forget the whole thing. No, no, we're for you, really. It's not like that at all. He vindicates the law, but he does it with a two-edged sword because he knows the hypocrisy of these people. But then when he says, does no one condemn you, then it's very encapsulated, nor do I condemn you. Why? Because he's going to take all our condemnation. Not because he's just careless about sin. No, he's going to pay the price of sin so he can give away freedom. He can say no condemnation. There's no condemnation once we are in Christ. And then he says this to her, go and try a bit harder. He doesn't say that. He says, go and don't sin anymore. Wow, what a releasing word. Go and don't sin anymore. It's like the gospel in a little story. And it's Romans and Galatians. The law brings us to Christ. Christ takes away our guilt and frees us from the power of sin. Sets us free. And he's our new husband. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask you to help us to cultivate a delightful relationship with you. We thank you, Jesus. You come seeking and saving. We thank you came as a bridegroom, seeking a bride. We thank you, Lord, at the heart of our religion is a love affair that is mind-boggling and beautiful and breathtaking, that you, Lord Jesus, love us. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Love every young man and woman in this tent You've got an insatiable appetite for our affection. You want us to delight in you, enjoy you, experience your free kindness and mercy. Lord, I pray for each one here. I pray for grace to abound towards us. I pray for any who are inclined to revert to legalism. I do ask you, set them free. I do ask you, Lord Jesus, that you will do us good by truth. And I pray that we might live this new life of this sweet relationship with you. Lord, please bless everyone, every college, every context. And I pray that we may live as those liberated by truth. We thank you for Paul's constant recurring phrase, do you not know? 
We know it's truth that sets us free, not just endeavor. We praise you for your wonderful truth. Lord, bless us today, I pray. Amen. I'd just like to pray, come to me as I'm praying. I'd like to pray with you and for you now. Would you like to stand, please? I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer after me. And at a certain point in praying it, I'd like you to take a step. Okay? And what I'm often, over these last few days, referred to as, if we'd gone further into it in Romans 5, we'd say, well, we're not in Adam, we're in Christ. We're not slaves of sin, we're slaves of righteousness. We're not married to the law, we're married to Jesus. We're not under law, we're under grace. All these things are true of us. I'd like to just help you, I hope, by just getting you to say these things in prayer with me. And then at a certain point, I'd like you to take a step. So right, I identify with my new place. Right, it's not an experience, you know. Saved, baptized, step to the right experience. You know, we're not. That's not you. In fact, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Right? You just have someone tread on you as they. It's like that disco thing. I wasn't sure if when that happened, if it was going to be about the disco or charismatics. You know, but um, I enjoyed it whichever way. Uh, but I'm going to encourage you, okay, to own truth. That's what I'm asking you to do, and I, I hope finding that helpful. That, Lord, this is what I used to be. This is, what I'm, this is what I now am, okay? So I'd like to pray little phrases. If you would kindly just say the phrase after me in, in prayer to God. All right? Okay? Comfortable? And then we'll all go that way when you make the step in a minute. All right? Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we are really here before you now, and in the light of truth we've spent some hours looking at, opening your word, trying to communicate it together. And I, I do ask you for your spirit to rest on us now as we conclude this session. Just pray these things after me. Thank you, Father, I am no longer in Adam. Thank you, Father, I am no longer in Adam. Thank you, I am no longer a slave of sin. Thank you, I am no longer a slave of sin. Thank you, I'm no longer married to the law. Thank you, I am no longer married to the law. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Now let's just take this step. Thank you, Father, I am in Christ. Thank you, Father, I am in Christ. Thank you that I am a slave of righteousness. Thank you I am a slave of righteousness. Thank you I am under grace. Thank you I am under grace. Thank you I am married to Jesus. Thank you I am married to Jesus. Father, I thank you that these things are true for every one of us who are in Christ here this morning. And I ask you that we may live as those of this glorious new identity. Lord, let your spirit and your word communicate truth to us in a life-imparting way. And Lord God, bless us as we go from this place, that we may truly, lastingly benefit from opening the word together and seeing the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus. May those around us see us increasingly happy in God, increasingly celebrating his kind grace towards us, increasingly clear, no longer so vulnerable to Satan's accusations and that sense of not doing well enough to please you. Thank you, Jesus, that every day you're my righteousness again today. 
You're my righteousness. Again today, I don't have to justify myself. I can live as free. And in this relationship of love with you, please bless your dear people with your truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes the final part of this four-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.